I just love what you do for me. You're so reliable, smart and incredibly well-connected. <clears throat> Excuse me, could I pay for my meal? Oh, of course, just having a moment with my Combank Smart Terminal. Tap away. Feel a stronger connection. With extra connectivity, you're always payment ready. There's more to love with the Combank Smart Terminal. Mm, it is a nice terminal. Eligibility criteria, fees and T's and C's apply. Hey, welcome to the Medicubes podcast, where we bring you all that's good, exciting and sometimes challenging in primary health care. I'm Chris Spee, joined by my good friends Kim Pointer and Rivka Hagen. Together we bring a wealth of experience and passion, as well as being in the thick of what's going on in our industry. We used to have a laugh, debrief and chat about all the big issues and what was happening in our own professional worlds and invite you to join us in this conversation. So join us and our invited guests every month to bring you a lighthearted take on the latest, greatest and controversial issues and a few pearls of wisdom along the way. In the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of the lands on which we meet and pay our respects to the elders past, present and emerging. A hearty welcome from Birupai country. And uh, Rivka Hagen here. I'm meeting you from Jajawurrung country. And a big hello from Turbul and Jagara country. Hello, wonderful Medicubes listeners, and hello, season 2023. We hope you've had some rest and relaxation over the festive season and gearing up for what will be a, how shall we say it, an interesting year. The current media focus on impending changes to the healthcare funding space, and in particular, the Medicare landscape, will bring plenty of opportunities, challenges, and controversies. That brings us to this podcast episode, which is part two of a discussion with the practice coach team of Dr. Tony Lemke, Simon Matthews, Medicubes co-host Kim Pointer, and me, Rivka Hagen. This panel discussion includes special guest Tracy Johnson from Inala Primary Care in Queensland. In the previous episode, we explored the idea of voluntary patient enrolment as a framework for delivering patient-centred, accessible, proactive high-quality and team-based care with a GP leader. If you haven't listened to that episode, we recommend that you hit pause, go back and listen to that one first, titled Ensuring Continuity of Care, Part 1. Here is a snippet of that conversation. So context, when Medicare was created, there were 14 taxpayers for every pensioner. We're now down to seven. So we've seen a halving and over the next few years, that's going to fall to four. So we've got a massive fiscal problem in this country where we simply can't afford to keep funding things the way we do. And we've got lots of elderly patients going, I'm sorry, but I can't even get into a hospital. So we've got this real financial crisis and then COVID came along and made it a whole lot worse. So the reality that we need to face, and I like speaking pragmatically, is that there is no magic wooden budget that we can just go, make my world a better place by giving me billions of dollars more because there's not the tax base to give us that billions of dollars more. On top of that, Australia has one of the most expensive per patient healthcare systems at a user level. So we're creating hurdles for people to access care by cost. We're also creating hurdles for care around access because in most GP practices now, there's doctors, if not all of the doctors, who are not taking new patients. So simply getting access to care is becoming a problem. So this is our context. So voluntary patient enrolment might support our practice if it clearly identified who we're accountable for, but also gave us funding that enabled us to provide those systematic and team-based services that they need. So in the absence of funding that supported 
more nurses and the absence of availability of nurses or other allied health providers or other healthcare workers to work with us, it doesn't add much value to what we're already doing. So within the fee-to-service structure, we are providing team-based care to the extent that we can. It would be better if the GP didn't have to see every single patient to be able to deal with them, if the nurses and the allied healthcare providers had much more autonomy, much better for us. The question is, does voluntary patient enrollment, will it support that? Will you have to demonstrate that you're doing that? Or will it just help me buy a better car and we keep doing what we're doing? If feature service works alongside capitation systems, it's difficult for me not to want to still bill the fee in addition to receiving the capitation or the registration payment. So there's a lot of details that need to be worked out to make sure that any changes of VPE have a positive impact on the health system. In this second part, we explore some of the arguments against voluntary patient enrolment and the healthcare home framework and discuss the challenges that will need to be overcome if this is to be a successful new funding program. What's an argument against VPR? Why would you not do this? We've heard, we've heard a lot of reasons why it might be beneficial, but I'm, I'm curious to, uh, to understand why might we not do it? I might address that. Um, I'm informed a bit by an article by Chris Irwin and other people have been critical of the proposals that are out there. And I might say, if I'm against VPR, I can still have common ground in that I believe that patient outcomes are better and health services are more efficient if patients have a long-term relationship with a particular GP. And in fact, the AMA statement that was released yesterday said that in fact, in Australia, 75% of the people of the population identifies as having a particular general practitioner and 95% identify with having a usual practice. So I could say that there is, in fact, de facto... De facto, de, de facto VPR. De fa- anyway, uh, yeah. without having a particular scheme for it, I would agree that general practice needs to be financed and supported because it's struggling. I would agree that team-based care is vitally important and the best way to deliver care. I might agree that the fee-for-service has its faults, in the way that it's structured, in that it's not high enough, that it rewards the wrong things, but I might say that it's better than the alternative system. So that's it, Chesterton's gate principle. Before you pull down a fence, you have to demonstrate that what you're going to replace it with is better than what you've got now. So even if the fence is faulty, it's best to keep it there until you can demonstrate that what's, what, what's happening is better. Mm-hmm. So if it's a critic, if it's a critic of voluntary patient enrolment, I would say that there's no evidence that registration leads to better outcomes. That where they've gone a long way down this path in the UK since 2004, that they're calling for fee for service to be introduced and UK GPs are fleeing, uh, fleeing, moving to Australia and don't like the systems that are there. I would say that the healthcare homes trial that was run in Australia was unsuccessful in improving patients' care. Mm. I would say that the current fee for service is the best way to encourage young doctors to become GPs and provides health outcomes for the patients. And the main problem that I would argue with VPE is it misunderstands the relationship between general practice and government. It's not a partnership between equals. equals. And over the last 20 years, it's become apparent that the main agenda for primary care funding has been cost-cutting and big data and, and increased bureaucratic control. And the motivation of general practice is providing excellent patient care. And when you've got this difference in goals and the massive power differential, in that general practice is primarily funded by the government, any deal that we make between the two forces will come out of the government's needs being delivered at the expense of general practice outcome. And and I would say that we're playing with fire as GPs and we're naive if we think that 
voluntary patient enrolment, getting a moiety for having more patients enrolled without other changes to the system is going to end up with a better deal. That is part of a slippery slope where capitates will be expected to do more, will be accountable for more, we'll have to provide more data for these patients, but we won't be receiving the the resourcing we need to provide the team-based care that we Mm. want to need. So I can agree that the medical home model is good. I would argue if I was against VPE that really we need to make sure the fee-for-services rewards team-based care, rewards chronic disease management, rewards looking after people with uh, serious health problems and Indigenous people and, and, and people with lower socioeconomic status because it's too risky to go down this other path where the details are unclear. It sounds good in theory. In practice, it may not deliver what we want to deliver and, and it won't be voluntary for long. It'll become mm-hmm. so. So, part, one of the things I'm hearing there, Tony, is is the whole question of what, why place a system, invent a system that simply reflects what we're already doing. If if 75 percent of patients say I have regular GP and 90 percent say I have regular practice, as you said, that's that's VPE, uh, uh, that's de-, de facto VPE. We do need to be careful though of the um, the whole question of no evidence that this works because. Uh, yeah, as we all learned in uh, undergrad school, absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. Maybe we're just not asking the right questions yet to to adduce or draw out that evidence that, that might tell us what's going on. Kim, I can see you had your hand up. It's down now, but perhaps there's something that you want to uh, throw in here. Yeah, look, you know, I'm all for making sure that there's absolutely a funding model that supports team-based care and absolutely everyone working to their top of license and scope of practice is going to be, you know, rewarding for the practitioners, is it not? And at least then, you know, we're going to open up opportunities for the likes of me who goes, I would love for someone to be my regular GP, but at the moment I have to telehealth back to my old team back in Torquay so that I can get regular bloods and all the like because I can't access a regular GP. Now, I am maybe in that top 10% that you're talking about, Tony, but I I know that um, particularly in one area that I'm working with, people between the age of 16 and 24 cannot get a regular GP. So they've had to do a whole code design on on opening up better access. So I'm wondering, you know, those marginalised communities, people that can't access a GP because maybe they can't um, afford to go to a GP practice because a lot of practices are now going to mixed billing and I totally agree why they have to and all the rest of it. And there's definitely a case for that. You know, I'm just concerned about who's going to get left behind. You know, I can put up a hand and say, yes, I can afford private billing and say, yes, I can wait six weeks to go and see a GP to have a skin check, right? But what if I'm acutely unwell and I ring up and they say, no, you can't get in because you're not normally a patient of ours, And, you know, what if I only go and have my women's health checks every three years or five years? I'm going to fall between the cracks. That's my only concern with that particular model. Mm. Tracy, I'd be uh, interested in your perspective on this, and I'm speaking partly from my experience as a psychologist and a psychologist who's worked in in the area of health behaviour change with chronic disease patients, uh, many of whom uh, were overweight and obese, having bariatric surgery with lots of comorbidities, diabetes, hypertension, et cetera, et cetera. And as a group, those patients were people who had over time developed a do or die mindset about their treatment. I'm going I'm to try this, whatever, the, whatever this might be, I'm going to try this and this has got to work. 
the, the desperation they had begun to feel as a result of things just not moving in the way that they wanted over time had become the dominating force for them. And so their, their, their mindset, their approach to everything became, this has got to work perfectly or I'll just throw it out. And I'm wondering, given what we've been saying about the, you know, the burnout rates among physicians and clinicians, that the the extent to which we're struggling under the burden of, um, you know, the econometrics of of healthcare delivery and rising costs and lowering tax bases and so on, I'm wondering how much that desperation is starting to be present. And I'm also wondering, therefore, how much that might be shaping mindsets about something like VPE and whether you think there's a risk in people approaching this as a as a panacea i hear everything you've said simon and go tick 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 so if i use <laughs> if i use an analogy that's perhaps a timely one you know we've just seen the death of the queen and the brits putting on pump and splendor like they do in, in nobody else's country and we go back to what a referendum is like okay it's really hard to get a referendum up in this country and i think there's the majority of australians kind of go we had a foreigner as our head of state how does that work but when a referendum was put forward we didn't vote for it. Um, and I think the time has come again where people are saying, you know, we probably need to look at who our head of state is, whether it'll get over the line or not, you know, who knows. It'll come down to the model. And I think registration itself, is it a panacea for all the crisis that we're having? It's one or I think it's probably one of the central pillars because how do you know how much money to give to a practice for a team of care unless you know how many patients they're serving? And at the moment, our SWIPI count doesn't really reflect how many patients we're serving and what their need is. If I look at my patient population, you know, we're in a social housing suburb where we've got a very large migrant population, huge mental health issues, lots of trauma issues, all of that sort of stuff. So an incredibly complex patient group where I've got 52% more of our patients who are over the age of 65 than the regional average. They're clustering to my practice. So what I want is actually needs-based funding. Nobody would disagree with that. We, you know, And at the moment, we're using activity-based funding, reflecting frequency of attendance as need. And yet, if in your model, your diary is so constrained that you can only give that patient six minutes or less, which a lot of practices are, are you in fact meeting the need? You're milking the magic money cow, but you're not actually meeting the need of those patients because, you know, the sort of patients we're serving need a lot longer, which is why it's a lot harder for us to use the Medicare system and keep the doors open because we've got patients, 25% of the care we deliver is with an interpreter. It automatically takes more than double the amount of time. So, you know, I can't do six-minute medicine here and, and make it work. And I think there's a lot of practices that as ageing happens, as complexity rises, et cetera, they'll quickly discover that what they're doing at the moment where we've seen practices move from four patients an hour to six patients an hour to eight patients an hour. You know, we've all seen that trajectory. You can't juice the lemon any harder. So we've got to do something different. And that's where I think knowing who your patients are, being able to plan what's needed for those patients and do it in such a way that the patient is included because the patient is part of their care team. And often we've forgotten that. We think, oh, the time that they get with us is the most valuable part of the day, which is why I can just siphon it out in six-minute intervals. Rubbish. You know, we need to name and shame the fact that we're underfunded. So 7% of healthcare budget going to general practice is a nonsense. Less than 2% of the healthcare budget going to preventative health. Absolute nonsense. But how do we change that? It's not about funding doctors to do more care because there's not more doctors. It's about funding teams to do care differently so that we can have more care so that people like Kim can get in and see what who she needs when she needs them on a regular basis. So the whole nexus of care still needs to be medically led by a doctor. You know, 
they have the skills and knowledge, but it doesn't need to be done by a doctor. And to break that nexus, at the moment, the Medicare system is very much based on a doctor sees a patient, you bill Medicare. I actually don't want nurses to fall into the same trap. I know that there's a rising conversation around, you know, let's give nurses a Medicare item for this, that and everything else because then you just end up with nurses being seen as a revenue generator as well. And frankly, that's not why we got into healthcare. We got into healthcare to care for people. We're people, people. We want to solve their problems with them. And if all we end up doing is just having to account for every five seconds of our day, that's not very satisfying. It's about how do we work with patients in a long-term way? And that's why people are attracted to general practice. They want those relationships with patients. They want to see the results. They want to support them. Um, so we need a different funding model mm-hmm. that doesn't allow us to fall into the trap that they have in other countries where, again, care becomes invisible and you can be cut out of the funding equation as we've very successfully been in Australia. I want to name and shame the fact that government has abused us and we've let them abuse us. Now we need to change the dynamic. Mm-hmm. I, I I'm, I'm, I'm seeing a lot of a lot of nodding. So yeah, go go ahead, Riff. Sorry, um, no, no, please. I'm just wondering if I can bring into the mix uh, the the notion that the way that GPs are engaged in primary care at this point in time is primarily as essentially micro businesses, independent practitioners who rule their own roost under the umbrella of a a practice infrastructure. And for me, this is, I I guess, one of the the big challenges too in uh, that notion of voluntary patient enrolment and how will that work practically when at the moment so many practitioners are directly in control of the patient-practitioner relationship and the practice has very limited input into how that might roll out from a medical legal point of view, from a Medicare billing point of view. So so that structure of how that currently plays out is very much, it flies in the face of what we would be trying to achieve when we broaden out that team-based care. And so I actually think that this is going to be one of the biggest barriers that we as practices are going to have to think very differently about how we engage practitioners as primary controllers, but within a team environment, which by its very nature means that there needs to be, I guess, some sort of breakage of that independent practitioner type of model of engagement, um, you know, and how that would work uh, practically. And and I do see uh, big headwinds, especially for most of the, those independent practitioners who are absolutely not ready to give up that control that they currently uh, rest over their environment. Mm. But are they controlling a wrestle with a crocodile, um, which is not a fun thing to do every day? And, you know, but they're so used to it, they're not naming it as a crocodile. Um, so, you know, if I look at our practice, we offered both models. You can come here as a subcontract GP if you want to. The vast minority of health oh. clinicians have accepted that um subcontractor model because they work in other practices and they come here uh, to be part of, I guess, our innovation model and to give back. Um, loving. Our loving. Whereas, you know, other doctors and, you know, our team keeps growing and we keep saying, well, you can have this model or this model. Do you want to be on a salary with an incentive or do you want to be a pure subcontractor? And by and large, people are going, no, I actually want to be on a salary. And it does change the dynamic. And I think if we go back to where general practice was, where you typically had GPs owning their own practice as a collegiate group and sitting down and making decisions as a collegiate group, they structured 
as subcontractors for tax effective reasons and whatever else, but they still were very committed to that practice, very committed to each other and sharing the care across their team because they were all in it together. We've now moved to a world where more than half of GP practices are owned by corporates. So the GPs themselves are not part of that ownership kind of, you know, we're all in this together thing. They're very much seeing themselves as um, subcontractors and you have, you've seen that distancing of, well, you can't tell me what to do, I'll do it my way. And you know what, when it comes to the hard work, it's very easy to go, that's not my problem. Mm -hmm. I'm doing it this way because it suits me. Mm -hmm. The problem for government and for patients and for society is if more people step back and go, actually, it's not my problem, and yet we've got a growing big problem, how do we resolve it? Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, naming the fact that we've got a problem with the private enterprise model and it's private practice, subcontractors within private practice, we've got these layers of privatisation incentive. I'm highly entrepreneurial, have created many businesses and made lots of money out of it. So I'm not opposed to capitalism, but I'm saying in a system where you've got growing need and complexity and uncertainty, how do you pay a premium for uncertainty in a really cost-constrained system and not have people step back going, well, I can't do that in six minutes, so I'm not interested, thanks. Mm -hmm. I would imagine that, you know, a lot of the thinking that needs to happen at this point in time by so many of the practices and, and you know, most particularly the independent practices, the, the the smaller ones that sort of grapple with that structure, that now's the time to think about what would that mean for us in terms of going forward and starting to have the conversations within their teams about some of those fundamental building blocks that are going to be either helpful or problematic in whatever the next space might look like. And also dealing with attraction and retention. We're in a hunt for talent and we will continue to be in a vicious hunt for talent. So what's your value proposition that you can offer that's different from the practice down the road and the practice in the next town? Very much so. You know, we've got a very different value proposition here where it's a case of, well, we actually make sure recalls and reminders are done and done properly. Doctors are not doing this at 9 o'clock at night you know, in their own time because they're subcontractors. You know, you've got a non-dispensing pharmacist that if confused about a new medication or whether this medication will interact with this other substance, whatever, you can go and talk to someone about that so you feel safer. You've got nurses doing a heap of preventative health work for you so you're not going to have those conversations right at the end of a consult going, oh, by the way, my mum got this and should I be worried about that, you know, because somebody's looking after preventative health. Some of these things are actually worth paying for. They have value, but you've got to be able to package it up in a very different way that when there's risk, and at the moment in our system, there's incredible risk. There's risk to practices and their sustainability. There's risk to clinicians from litigation. There's the opportunity cost of do I do this or do I do something better funded with my time? I could go and work in cosmetic medicine rather than general practice, still use my licence and I earn a tonne more money. You know, So we've got to get our head around risk and opportunity cost and all of these other things that we've never had to grapple with and come up with a different value proposition. And I think that patient registration and holistic comprehensive care is a different value proposition with a whole bunch of different systems behind it. Don't know the answer to everything and I've been experimenting for a while. And I don't know what government thinks about this yet either. So for me, it's hard to, you know, be unequivocally committed to voluntary patient registration. I'm 95% there. Um, But I'd still like to know what the devil will be in the detail because I don't want to end up just being raped and pillaged in a different way. Tracy, Tracy, thank you uh, for that. And um, as we we wrap up this uh, discussion, uh, one of the things that's really stood out to me again very clearly 
is the complex nature of this. You, you, use, you use the word systems, Tracy, in your uh, in your response just then towards the end of your response. And of course, we're not simply talking in all of this about you know a, a single system of a GP delivering healthcare to a patient. It's way more complex than that with political systems, taxation systems, funding systems, social systems, business systems, et cetera, et cetera, uh, all of which interact with each other in a, in a complex, adaptive kind of way. And, and that makes the process of identifying uh, something that's going to support us not only for the next 5, 10, 20 or 50 years, but well into the future an extraordinarily difficult proposition. One of the things we haven't even touched on, of course, is the whole idea of uh, of prevention in healthcare. You mentioned, Tracy, the idea that, you know, you, we, we've passed that tipping point now of consultations being about chronic disease. And in many ways, you know, we, we may be simply rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic if we can't get ahead of that curve and, and start to have more of an impact at the preventative end. Maybe VPE is part of that. Um, maybe it's not. I don't know. Um, but thank you to everyone. Tracy, thank you for joining us as a special guest. Tony, thank you also for being uh, able to prosecute uh, various sides of this. Rishka and Kim, thank you as well. Everyone, thank you so much for being part of this. My hope is that uh, for those of you watching, that some ideas from this conversation will foment in you and you will start to form some of your own informed views about, about VPE and start to think critically about the best ways to deliver healthcare to a growing and ageing population. Thanks very much, everyone. Thanks for listening to the Medicubes podcast. Make sure you subscribe via your favourite podcast listening app so you don't miss an episode. Medicubes is brought to you by Cubico, MediCoach and Medical Business Services with technical support from the awesome crew at Talking Health Tech. This podcast presents information of a general nature and we recommend that you obtain professional advice for your individual circumstances always. We'd love to hear your feedback, questions and suggestions for future topics on the show. Make sure you visit us via the Minicubes website, which you can access via the show notes of this episode. Also, if you're enjoying the show, write us a nice review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and share it with someone who might get some value from it so we can continue to share these important messages with more people. Speak to you next time.